Welcome to The Burning Word, a podcast that invites you to return to the Word and encounter God again. This is the end of our study of Job, though for you, I hope it's just been the beginning of actually diving into the text of Job. And I'll admit, it's about as mammoth and monumental a book as you're going to find in the Bible. As you've hopefully heard, we have this really rich and beautifully designed study available on our website, www.burningwordpodcast.com. It's got scripture to read, devotions, prayer, therapeutic exercises to walk with Job and encounter God in your suffering. I hope you found in the study an honest conversation, even a brutally honest conversation at times, on the pain and questions of suffering. Yet Job, as a book, has consistently surprised me in where it's wanted to take us, and as no exception, this end is going to have one last twist. There's an epilogue in Job 42 that's going to cover the end of Job's story, and many commentators and critics alike have pulled their hair out at how Job ends. So this episode, I want to explore that epilogue, and I want to talk about restoration as the hope of the sufferer. That's what I think Job is getting at. Does the God we seek to encounter restore justice to us in what's been lost? And has this God actually counted the cost of the suffering Job has endured? This is going to lead us finally, after all these episodes, to talk about the suffering of Jesus and what it might have to do with the suffering of Job. So it's time now to turn to restoration, to invite Jesus into Job's story, and to look for hope. So from 2006 to 2010, there was a show you likely heard a lot about. In fact, I'm guessing you probably started watching it at some point. You maybe even really liked it. You got into the characters, seemed to really be saying something. But then at some inevitable point, you missed a week or two, or perhaps even a whole season. And then you started to get really confused. The twists and turns, if we're being honest, were all just a bit too much. Felt like it wasn't going anywhere anymore. But suddenly, you heard the show was actually going to be ending. It was all going to be wrapping up in a big season finale that was promised to hold all of the answers. This was finally all going to make sense. So you and everyone else you knew settled in to watch this finale, waiting with bated breath. And then, as the final scene faded out into white and you realized the show was over, you and everyone around you threw up their hands in the air and cried in dismay, what in the world has been happening this whole time? If you haven't guessed, the show I'm talking about was Lost, the smash hit created by J.J. Abrams, Jeffrey Lieber, and Damon Lindelof. Lost has a bit of a tricky legacy. It was hailed by some as one of the greatest TV shows ever created. It deeply connected with fans. The characters were rich and immersive. The plots twisted and turned. Each week would set the conspiracy theories ablaze. Some weeks it would feel like the show was the only thing anyone was talking about. Normally when a show gets that popular, it's because it's found a nerve in its cultural moment that resonated. And I think that's exactly what happened with Loss. Most of us, if we're being honest, do feel lost. Like we know our stories matter. We know that we're going to need flashbacks to understand our pain. Yet we now find ourselves in this unexpectedly isolated place 
and we're just struggling with the bewildering questions of what in the world we're to do now. In that sense, loss was kind of like a lot of Job's trapped on an island. I think that's why we like Lost and like Job. That's what Lost got right. But the finale... Well, don't worry, I won't ruin the ending. But needless to say, for some, the finale was so underwhelming, it almost toppled the legacy of the show. So many questions that had been raised appeared to be left unanswered. Even the small sense of closure the ending tried to provide fell flat for so many. That was it, some said. After all that explanation, that was all the show was actually about? I bring up the finale to Lost because in some ways the epilogue to the book of Job is going to feel the same way. We've been on this journey with Job through 42 rigorous chapters. We began with this incredibly complex exchange between Satan and God that surfaced all kinds of promising theological questions. We sat with Job in the ash heap of total misery, scraping his broken body with broken shards in an attempt to comfort his pain. I hope exploring Job's journey connected with the raw nerve that is your suffering. I've been praying as we went that hearing Job's words would allow you to find ways to express your own pain. And then there was the relentless onslaught of the skeptics, those who claimed to be Job's friends. Does any ancient literature capture more honestly the relentless pressure of religion when it comes to suffering? To simply be silent, repent, and revert back to words of praise. But if Job has connected to your suffering, I've also prayed it has strengthened your nerve when it comes to your suffering. Job knew the whole time he needed God far more than he needed the friends. So in hope against hope, finally, after praying, waiting, contending, God did indeed appear. And after God spoke from the whirlwind, Job found a new confession of faith. Not all, however, will resonate with Job's journey. Perhaps, some suggest, we've actually been getting it wrong when it comes to what the book of Job is trying to say. Perhaps Job was actually wrong himself to have challenged God with his injustice. Perhaps the friends really were the ones we should have been listening to this whole time when it came to all of Job's pain. Perhaps this is why God doesn't seem to appear with comfort or answers, but instead offers his own brutal onslaught of questions. And what is it, after all, that God actually said when it came to that whirlwind? Is the book of Job even clear on what it's trying to say? We thus turn to the first twist in Job's ending. I gotta say, it's actually quite a good one. And it's going to take us deeper into what will be needed for restoration when it comes to God and our suffering. So here's the text. It's Job 42, verses 7 to 9. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, The Lord said to Eliaphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. 
for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now, if you were listening to Job for the first time, your immediate thoughts would be, wait, what? You mean all those words Job spoke? God thinks they were right? Like the places where Job questioned God's justice, or the times Job suggested that God had abandoned his post and left Job to die. Those were right? And the friends, the one who spent chapter after chapter defending the greatness and grandeur of God, beating back Job's defenses, pressing him to simply embrace his lowly state and repent. Those were wrong? In fact, the words of the friends were so wrong that God is now said to burn with anger against them. And they need Job to pray for them, to offer burnt offerings so that God won't strike them down. This is, of course, the playfulness of the book of Job. It seems to enjoy subverting our expectations. It's very disruption here of what we'd expect is inviting us to slow down and carefully consider what's unfolding. There's really two key affirmations that I want to make sure you catch in this closing exchange. The first affirmation is that Job was in fact right to speak his pain and to contend with God for the sake of justice. I know for some of you listening, this is still difficult to swallow. I know it pushes back against every pious bone in our body. We were taught that God is meant to be praised, not questioned. We were told, and still are told, that human beings are sinful and small creatures when it comes to standing before God. Who do we think we are to bellow like Job, demanding God to appear and answer? Yet this passage could not be clearer on its assessment of Job's suffering. Job was right to speak his pain and press for God's presence while the friends were wrong to critique Job's pain and dismiss the need for God to appear. This interpretive key is fundamentally important. It unlocks the whole book of Job. It's not always easy when it comes to making sense of which model to follow in our suffering. If this affirmation from God had not appeared, then I would have been forced to write a very different study. Yet even for his rage, Job is lifted up to us as a saint, which really makes me pause. How should I respond to the suffering of another? How will I respond in the midst of my own pain? Yes, sometimes my lips will be able to utter, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, as Job did. But what my heart will likely require is that I lean in to my protest of pain and not stop until God appears. That's the first affirmation, that Job was right to speak his pain. The second affirmation is even more intriguing. On the other side of suffering, reconciliation will be required. Now, we all thought that it was Job and his boldness that would be told to repent. 
But no offerings are required here from the victim. I've heard many stories, too many, where churches claiming to seek reconciliation have said, your abuser has apologized, so why can't you just forgive them? Are you sure there's not some sin you need to repent of as well? I think this passage directly refutes such vile nonsense. There is no sacrifice required from Job. There is no sacrifice required from the hundreds of girls who were sexually assaulted by Larry Nassar. There is no sacrifice required from the thousands and millions more, men and women, who are finally speaking out about their own experiences of sexual abuse. Let us be clear. The friends did not act violently towards Job, but their words were manipulative, over-spiritualized, and were more intent in silencing than considering Job's case. To such friends, we are told that God burned with anger at the words they had spoken. And he will demand that their sacrifices are needed if they are to be forgiven. They are the ones who will have to pay the cost for their cause of pain. Seven bulls and seven rams will be required. That's a massive amount of damages to pay in the ancient world. However, in order for such a sacrifice to be accepted, they actually will need the help of an intermediary. God tells them in verse 8, Go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. It is their very victim that will be needed to pray for them if their repentance is to be accepted. I mean, that should strike chills in the heart of every abuser. Yet Job, the one who has suffered and contended so faithfully for so long, is up to the challenge. The friends will do what the Lord requires of them to be made right with him and Job. We're told simply in verse 9, So life as the Temnite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Job will offer prayers on their behalf, and God will forgive them because his servant Job prayed that they be released from the cause of Job's own pain. What we glimpse here is the heart of costly reconciliation, or what Dietrich Bonhoeffer liked to call costly grace. There are no cheap answers in the book of Job. The friends will be held accountable for the words they have spoken. And if they have any hope of forgiveness, it will be Job's prayers that are needed for their own grace. Yet I just love here that Job does offer them. Because Job's suffering hasn't cost him the dignity of his own faith. As I mentioned before, this story of Job's suffering has actually been all about friendship. We can see here that in its insistence to move through suffering, we're actually going to need to seek that reconciliation. The result is friends and Job reconciled to each other, even as God gives us just the smallest glimpse 
of what it will look like when God himself returns to establish justice in grace. I really do love these two affirmations, that Job was right to speak his pain, and that on the other side of suffering, costly reconciliation will be met with grace. They both help make sense of Job's story to me. They help guide me to walk with God and Job into healing and the relief of costly grace. These two affirmations alone would be enough for me to walk away from Job with much to ponder. The only problem is that it's not quite the ending. In fact, I think if we would have ended here, a lot more people would be satisfied with the Job season finale. But it doesn't. There's one last twist in Job's story. So let me read you now Job 42, verses 10 to 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapik. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this Job lived 140 years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Now, I didn't say Job would be easy. You can probably see the critique and feel the wince. For all of Job's pain, everything just ends with a they lived happily ever after. I mean, double possessions, new kids, beautiful daughters. You can almost picture the storyboard editors of the book of Job looking at the author and saying, is this really how you want to end it? After all that suffering, everything just turns out okay? I could also picture the group of modern-day critics sitting together in the screening room after Job's story fades to black. I mean, you can almost hear them speak up. One film critic rips it to shreds, saying, This is fairy tale malarkey that even Disney movies have moved on from. Another sort of asks tentatively, oh, oh, I get it. Job is just like a parody, right? It, it's a satire, a fanciful life of faith where everything ends happy, but it's not really trying to say anything, right? Another critic has that look of anger. They say, all this restoration has become a mockery of Job's suffering. What might have been an honest reflection of dust and ashes has retreated to those rose-tinted glasses of faith. Finally, you have the postmodern, secular critic who shakes their head in disgust. They say this is the kind of nonsense you get when you try to bring God into the equation of suffering. These are the types of hollow stories we'd be better off without. 
I really do see how at first pass this epilogue is a struggle. Something feels off about the tone when you first read it. New possessions do not replace the experience of suffering. And new children don't just bring back the ones who were lost. Yet if you can stick with Job as a drama, I think there's actually a point here that the book of Job doesn't want us to miss. It's been there the whole time in the Hebrew scriptures. It's been on the edge of every tragedy the people of Israel have encountered. This point's been resilient through every rebellion of idolatry and every failure, and it's going to grow clearer and clearer until suddenly it will burst onto the New Testament scene in this dazzling and resplendent resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the point is this. The good news of the gospel is that there will be a restoration. Death is not the final word of our story. Suffering is not the only trajectory of our pain. We have not been abandoned to our sin and slavery. We are no longer sentenced only to the grave. There will be a day coming when what is lost will be resurrected, and justice itself will be established and restored. This epilogue seems confusing from an earthly perspective, because simple status and belongings couldn't make up for all the suffering Job has endured. But I think the point is far bigger than just the epilogue's gesture towards earthly belongings. The blessings of Job are actually being given as a sign to all who suffer. What was lost will be found again. There in the ashes, God works his resurrections. And though we may die, our suffering will not be in vain. I know how many of our shows pride themselves on realism. How often we think our dark despair is actually being honest and brave. But the book of Job ends on this gospel note because of its place in the bigger story God is telling. The scriptures are clear that God is always working towards the restoration of his creation. Would any other ending really satisfy our truest longings? Would we really want to follow a God who works in any other way? I know that nothing can bring back the loss of Job's children, but it's as if even here the book of Job nudges us gently. Is there any bigger story than Job's suffering that God is telling? Is there any life to be lived after all the pain? Do you still have the hope of a restoration? Do you believe in a God who can work redemptively in the midst of pain? I think it's only here, at the end of Job, that we find ourselves ready to talk about Jesus when it comes to our suffering. We've needed space to ask honestly, where is God? We've needed time to journey with what for many is the profound question that will make or break our faith in God. Can God be truly just and good in a world that suffers so? Now we're finally ready to consider, does Jesus make a difference to this question? Is Jesus there in the book of Job? There's this contemporary thinker you've probably heard of, who in profound ways has really embodied Job to the 20th century. He's a man by the name Eli Wiesel. Wiesel was born to a Romanian Jewish family in the 1930s and survived the concentration camps of Auschwitz as a teenager. 
He would go on to recall his experiences in the deeply moving account titled Night. Here's what's so compelling about him. Vizel writes broadly and powerfully about the true stakes of suffering when it comes to God's justice. In this sense, he's exactly like Job. Take this passage, one of the most memorable and moving, that Vizel writes, recollecting the night he arrived in Auschwitz and was separated from his mother and sisters, never to see them again. This is from Night. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke, that is, of the crematorium. Never shall I forget those flames which consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. A bit later, he's going to write, Some talked of God, of his mysterious ways, of the sins of the Jewish people and of their future deliverance. But I had ceased to pray. How I sympathized with Job. I did not deny God's existence, but I doubted his absolute justice. I mean, as we listen to Vizel's words, how could we not doubt the existence of God's justice in the face of the Holocaust? 11 million people died in the horrifying crematoriums. For no reason, families were ripped apart. Children like Vizel were left the rest of their lives with the emptiness of what had been and the shattered remains of a faith that couldn't seem to be put back together. Yet what's so compelling about Vizel is that he can't seem to shake God either. The rest of his life, he will question like Job. He will shake his fist at God in his writings. But Vizel can't seem to shake the idea that God was there. That's what makes God so hard to trust. And yet Vizel can't seem to rid himself of this God either. One scene in particular haunts Vizel in his recollections at night. It was his first experiences of the guards torturing and hanging a young boy. So Vizel is going to describe him as a child with a refined and beautiful face, even a sad-eyed angel. As the prisoners were gathering there in the yard, forced to watch, just before the hanging, Vizel heard somebody behind him whisper, Where is God? Where is he? As thousands of prisoners were forced to look on, for the half hour it took the boy to die. And then as they were marched past, forced to look this boy full in the face, Vizel again heard the same voice ask, Where is God now? Vizel writes, I heard a voice within me answer him. Where is he? Here he is. He is hanging here on this gallows. Now, Vizel is obviously not a Christian, yet what he glimpsed in the terrors of that moment, that for him signaled the very death of God, strikes me as the same staggering insight of the centurion who stood before the cross and said, surely this was the Son of God. I know we always take the centurion's words as a noble sign of faith, but I can't help but think the centurion in this moment doesn't know about the resurrection. All he knows is that that was God, and we have killed him. This is, of course, Nietzsche's famous line from Thus Spoke Zarathustra. God is dead, and we have killed him. 
But Nietzsche, Wiesel, and the centurion all spoke of more than what they could see. God did, in fact, die there on the horrors of the cross. God has, in fact, tasted every one of our sufferings and pain. Where else would Jesus be in the horrors of Auschwitz than hanging there on the gallows? He was the very man of sorrows who came to serve us with his own crucifixion, to take on our very sin and shame. Jesus was in fact executed on the gallows. His beaten and bloody body hung there with every sufferer of trauma, every victim of abuse, every child that is ripped from this world, every lost son and daughter. All of which really begs Job's questions. Did Jesus actually deserve to die? Was it justice that sent Jesus to the cross for us? Is it possible God is writing a bigger story than Job could speak of in his suffering? Is it possible that justice could not yet come for Job until God himself bore Job's innocent shame and pain? Around the same time that Wiesel found himself suffering the horrors of the Nazi concentration camp, a German theologian by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned, soon to be executed for his resistance to the Third Reich. He would pen a series of letters contemplating the world he saw before him and the hope of Christianity in the face of such monstrosities. In one letter, he offered this simple insight that has never left me. All he said was this, Only the suffering God can help. Only the suffering God can redeem the suffering of Job. Only the suffering God can respond to a young boy hanging there on the gallows. Only the suffering God can help you and me when we face these tragedies of our existence that don't seem to make any sense and that leave our souls with deeply grooved scars. Only the suffering God will follow us to the bottom of our drowning in a world of sorrows. Only the suffering God can help. I do believe that Jesus came to redeem the story of Job. I do believe in the restoration of Jesus, that the cross is not the final word, that the grave is not the end, that if we press for God, if we seek him in the midst of our suffering, that we will not only encounter him, but that he can restore us, even if incompletely, on this side of eternity. Yet I can only offer such hope because I know only the suffering God can help. Only the God who took on the mire of our human existence, who would himself taste the poverty, the betrayal, and the bloody pain. John Stott is this Anglican pastor leader of the global evangelical movement. I love that he penned these words. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? And Stott continues, he says, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth. 
a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Then Stott's going to conclude with this. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering. But over it we boldly stamp another mark. The cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. There have been a number of plays written about putting God on trial. I think this is apt in light of all the book of Job has had to say. Yet contemporary plays have often neglected the claims of Jesus to be suffering for us as God. There's this short playlet, however, called The Long Silence that invites Jesus to attend the conversation between Job and the friends. So the playlet goes something like this. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. Another group, an African-American boy, lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. And another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear or hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because they had suffered the most. A Jew, an African-American, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a young child who had endured agonizing cancer. In the center of the plane, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew, they said. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. 
As each leader announced their portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throngs of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. I do think Jesus was there in the gallows when Wiesel was questioned, where is God? Jesus has always been there with the sufferer. He suffers still with us. God has tasted Job's pain. He does, in fact, understand Job's cost. So if you've journeyed with us, with Job through this study, I'm not sure I've given you all the answers. Many questions likely remain about where God was in your suffering. Many questions still remain about how you're to heal and grow, even as you question, resist, and remember what you've lost. There are deeper questions still about how God could possibly restore a world that is this broken. I find myself daily wondering what has taken place, how the counsels of my own suffering could have come about in these designs, what role God had in allowing me to experience the immeasurable weight of my own shame and pain. Yet if there is any concrete answer to offer to the question, where is God in my suffering? I can tell you with hope that Jesus was there with Job. He sat on the ash heap. He understood Job's lament. He stepped forward when Job cried out for an arbiter. He counseled and comforted Job in ways the friends could not. And when Jesus went to the cross, he went for Job's children, who had no other hope than the grave. Jesus offered himself when Job was broken. And when the whirlwind spoke, Jesus offered forth his grace. I therefore can with confidence commend to you Job's example, that in your suffering you too should contend, should speak out, should wrestle with God in your pain. But I can also with confidence commend to you Jesus, that whatever other answers you seek, God was in fact there with you in your suffering. God does, in fact, know the cost of your pain. I'll close this study with a poem written by Edward Shalito. Shalito had witnessed the carnage of World War I, but like Bonhoeffer, he found comfort in the suffering God. Shalito had been reflecting deeply on the fact that the resurrected Jesus still retained the scars of the cross, the very scars that he would show to his disciples. The poem he wrote was called Jesus of the Scars. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn marks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the Scars. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we know thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands that side of thine. 
We know today what wounds are, have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. This has been John Perrine with the burning word. And until next time, grace and peace. Thank you.